Well, this week, uh, we've already seen more things that just don't make sense in our world. Another mass shooting, Southern California, wildfires all through uh, California, especially in the south, taking lives and destroying homes. Uh, we've experienced and are part of a pretty divisive process of practicing our democratic right to vote. And we're part of a divided country. And it all serves to bring to our mind, at least my mind, a question. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? What's going on? Uh, doesn't God see what's happening? Uh, isn't God supposed to be in charge of this world? Isn't he the one who is the king and who's reigning? Well, as we've been walking through the Old Testament, uh, we've seen over and over indications that the Jewish people were looking forward to a day when God would be king. Uh, they were looking forward to a day when the kingdom of God would break into the earth and into our lives and things would be different. Things would be the way that God wanted them to be. We've been thinking and talking about and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And all of that, those changes that he would bring about. Zechariah 14.9, not one of the texts that we looked at, but states what we've been feeling. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name is the only name. The Psalms repeat over and over, the Lord reigns. Well, now we've gotten to the New Testament. Mark chapter 1 is our text for today. And Jesus proclaims that that time that the people of Israel had been longing for and looking forward to from the very beginnings of the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Malachi has finally come. And so we have these summary verses in Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the, the word gospel could be translated good news. Same word in Greek. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand or has drawn close is near. And then Jesus concludes this summary statement saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, now what's interesting about this is if you read through the gospel of Mark, you have this mention of John being arrested, being handed over. But you don't have the details until Mark chapter six. And that's where we find out that John was speaking out against Herod. And Herod took issue at some of John's morals and, and his ethical preaching. And so he had him arrested and then had him executed, beheaded. And so it's a bit odd that if that's going to be related and shared in John chapter in Mark chapter six, why is there a mention here? But 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 I think what Mark is doing is helping us understand Something that we experience all too well. 
our expectations of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be present, our expectations of what it looks like for God to be in charge, our expectations of what it looks like for the Lord God to reign and to rule, somehow must include the reality that bad things will continue to happen on this earth. John was a faithful servant. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. He was true to God's message. He was true to God's heart. He was true to his calling. And he got killed because of it. In the very same passage that says that John was arrested, Jesus is proclaiming the good news of God. Later in this gospel, there will be a moment where Jesus gives a parable. And he says, the way God has designed the world as it is now is that the good and the evil will grow up together. There will come a time when the force of God's dominion and his reign will overpower and will relinquish all powers and authorities will relinquish their power to him. But for now, these things will grow up together. And that gives us an idea that, unfortunately, as much as we might be frustrated and rail against it, in our lives there will be this uncomfortable balance and tension between people working for good and people working for evil. At some point, our hopes... And our dreams will be realized. But what Mark is telling us in the very first chapter is that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back and ushers in his kingdom. And so while we are alive on this earth, there will be illness. And there will be death. There will be tragedy. There will be lawlessness. There will be everything that we dislike about life on earth. And all that will continue to thrive as we continue to live. And so our idea of what it means for the Lord to reign has to be modified to understand what his purposes are. And so we're going to unpack a couple of the phrases in these two verses and then get to a point where I think we can get to see where we can be involved in this process. It's interesting that Jesus' first words are, the time is fulfilled. The time is now. I don't know if many of you are boxing fans, but Michael Buffer is the guy who stands in the middle of the ring before a boxing match. And this is a trademarked phrase, and they actually take lawsuits out after, uh, uh, for, uh, after anyone who uses this phrase. The, the, let's get ready to rumble. You're familiar with that phrase where he's, let's get ready to rumble. And he does that. Well, I, I can't do it really the right way. It's supposed to because I don't want them to come and sue me for, for infringement of copyright laws. Um, but they do that. They go, they look, uh, and I was reading an interview with him uh, this last week, and uh, he says, yeah, anybody that uses it that doesn't ask us permission, we go after him and we make money. <laughs> well, growing up, he didn't realize it, but he had a half-brother. And his half-brother's named Bruce. And so since Michael had the boxing ring uh, announcement business tied up, 
Bruce decided to go into MMA, mixed martial arts. And if you ever see a UFC fight, which there's probably even fewer of you among our audience that are going to watch a mixed martial arts fight, you'll see Bruce, uh, you'll see uh, a Bruce Buffer. Now he couldn't do the let's get ready to rumble. His brother had already taken that, trademarked it, and that's his own little shtick. So Bruce came up with one that is a little bit less inventive. And he has to sell it by his body language. And I was going to show you the, the, the little bit of a clip, but, but it's really quite distracting. Um, Bruce's two words are, it's time. Now, that's not very, uh, you know, let's get ready to rumble. That, that packs a little bit of a punch. It, it, it's time is kind of weak. But see, Bruce can sell it. He'll get up there and, and now, for all of our viewers, and he draws it out for like about 10 seconds, right? And he's jumping up and down, and you can see the veins bulging in his neck. It's time! Well, see, that's what I would expect Jesus to do. <laughs> I would think that there would be prophets and angels, and everybody would be, it's time, this is it. God has visited the earth, and the kingdom of God is now present. You know, personally, I think a better song or a better catchphrase for this particular moment would be Etta James's song, At Last. At last. We've been waiting all these years. At last. But you see, what we've been waiting for and what we get sometimes aren't on the same page. When the time was fulfilled, when the time was right, and really a better translation will probably be something like when the time was ripe, at exactly the moment of ripeness, the kingdom of God came and Jesus appeared. Now, we know that people misunderstood what the kingdom of God was really about because that's what Jesus teaches about over and over and over and over. The kingdom of God is like this. And people say, oh, well, we didn't know that's what the kingdom of God was about. And the kingdom of God is like that. And the kingdom of God is like this individual and that individual and this king and that person. And really, when you get right down to it, what it means is the kingdom of God is near means... That the king is near. In all those years you've been waiting for the kingdom of God, the rule of God, what you've been waiting for, whether you knew it or not, is you were waiting for the king to arrive. And now Jesus is here. And as a result of that, he makes an appeal. Jesus makes an appeal and makes a call. The first part of this sentence, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, is simply an announcement. But I want you to get the impact of the next words. The first time Jesus tells people what they need to do. The first time Jesus calls people to a message. The first time he says, this is what I want you to hear. The first word out of his mouth is repent. I don't know if that strikes you. Repent. Stop. Turn around. Change. You see, if I were to imagine Jesus' first words, knowing what I know about his message, it would be something like peace or 
grace or ollie ollie income free. Everything's good. You're off the hook. His first word is repent. I think many of us understand this term. Literally, it means to change our mind. I think in reality, what it refers to is a change of the heart. It's not a word that we use much in today's world outside of church. I was reading an article, and, and, and the author suggests four different reasons why this idea of repentance is a bit difficult for us in today's world. He says, first of all, people tend to wince when they hear talk of repentance because that concept has been used so often, unfortunately, to just scold people. You should repent where there's a little bit of automatic finger wagging that goes along. Can you imagine what the story, how the story would have ended with the prodigal son if rather than meeting the father first, he would have met the older brother on the road? Can you imagine what the older brother might have said to his younger brother? You scoundrel. How could you do this? What are you thinking? You should be ashamed of yourself. And and, and then what would the younger son do? Adios. <laughs> I'm out of here. And unfortunately, the world is filled with people who, after an absence from church or after a specific distancing of themselves from church, they come back and the first word they hear is, a scold. Wow, what are you doing here? Huh, they must have changed the rules to let a guy like you in. I think people think of repentance as scolding. Uh, another problem in pitching repentance is that our generation is kind of not real cool with the idea of anyone telling us what we need to do. <laughs> uh, we, 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 none of us like other people to tell us what we should do. And so what we do when we're accused of doing something incorrect is we like to shift the blame. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We've already looked at that text. I mean, when God pointed out Adam's faults, Adam says, well, it was this woman. And actually, it goes back to you because I didn't ask for this woman. You brought her here and you put her here. I, I think a third issue is that our society has a very shallow view of sin. We really don't know what sin is anymore. And some even argue that in today's advanced, modern, developed world, there's no such thing as sin. Some of you are familiar with the various books of prayer that many churches have used. And, and there's one that is a prayer of confession that uh, comes out of the Book of Common Prayer. And someone wrote a satirized copy or version of it and rewrote the prayer to say this. Benevolent and easygoing father. We have occasionally been guilty of errors of judgment. We have lived under the deprivations of heredity and the disadvantage of environment. We have sometimes failed to act in accordance with common sense. We have done the best we could in circumstances and have been careful not to ignore the common standards of decency. We are glad to think that we're fairly normal. Do thou, O Lord, deal lightly with our infrequent lapses by thy own sweet self with those who admit they are not perfect according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from thee and grant us as indulgent as you, the indulgent parent, that we may hereafter continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. 
Well, that's not really much of a confession, is it? But it's how many people in the world view our relationship with sin. And the writer suggests a fourth reason our contemporary culture just has a shallow view of repentance. We think repentance means changing the exterior, uh, doing some different kind of a ritual, uh, getting deodorized and perfumed so that we look different enough. There's a poem by a guy named Auden that is an extremely large poem for the time being. And in it, he cites King Herod, who says, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. I do the crime. God does the forgiveness. And we're a match made in heaven. Or or perhaps you can relate to Huck Finn's alcoholic Pappy. The old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance, not drinking, and such things. He said he'd been a fool and was going to turn over a new leaf. Everyone hugged him and cried and said it was the holiest time on record. And that night he got drunker than he had ever been before. Well, for many people, that's what repentance looks like, trying to change in the moment, but not really making a deep, deep convicting change. I I flew up to D.C. last week to spend some time with my dad. Tomorrow is his 89th birthday. And uh, and so I I went during the week. And so we're we're sitting talking and he's reminiscing and thinking. And and at one point during lunch, he he looks at me and says, you know, Jim, and he knows my job. He's not a believer and uh, uh, never raised us to be religious. And and he knows my job. And and (laughs) he might be the only person in the world that thinks this. But he says, you know, Jim, you're the best preacher I've ever heard. And I said, Dad, you're the only preacher you've ever heard. I'm the only preacher you've ever heard, and so that doesn't really count. But um, but he still has that in his mind that I'm the best preacher. Um, and so he says, you know, now this is going to sound sacrilegious, and I don't want you to be too judgmental. He says, I think I could do a better job at running this world than God. If you just left it up to me, I think I could do a better job at that. So I didn't rip my beard out or my hair out or my mustache out and I didn't tear my clothes and I didn't step up and walk out of the restaurant. I said, really? Well, what would you change? So we start talking. And, and, and you know, the initial shock of a statement so brash, I could do a better job than God. Is where all of us <laughs> live. God says, do this. Now, you know, I really don't think that's necessary. I think I can go there. No, no, but you need to practice this. You know, if you spend all of your time going after riches, you're going to be an unhappy person. Well, God, I really don't think you know what you're talking about, because if I can just be wealthy, I'll be the happiest person on earth. God, you said I have to forgive someone, but, you know, I think you're wrong. I think I need that unforgiveness and that bitterness in my mouth. And that's the drive that keeps me going. I I think you missed it when you talked about forgiveness. And this whole thing about you say that you're the only one who's going to take vengeance. No, 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 no. We never forget. We're going to take the guy down and we're going to live it because we need to have the vengeance in our hands. And God says, vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. Don't worry about it. So in a very real sense, what my dad said in such un or irreligious terms is what we all say every time God tells us to do X and we decided to do Z. God says, you'll be happier if you follow this path. And we say, I'm not convinced. I think I want to try that path. And really, repentance gets down to humility and trust. Being willing to say, I got it wrong. That wasn't the right path. And I'm going to trust you and what you say and what you have marked out for me. As I talked with my dad and tried to help him unpack this blasphemous statement of his, he says, you know, for about this much space, you wouldn't be here talking to me. Because he was injured in the Korean War. He was in Korea and got hit by a mortar, friendly fire. He got hit by a piece of shrapnel that we always thought it was an oddity because my dad's belly button is way over on the side of his stomach. Because they, when they cut and moved everything and to, to fix him, they for some reason decided that that would be a better place for his belly button. I don't know why they, you know, if you find it in the middle, just put it back in the middle. I don't understand how doctors do their stuff, right? So anyway, whenever we go to the pool, we would always say, hey, hey, come here, come here, look at my dad's belly button. But you know what I didn't know was that he still has a piece of shrapnel in his spine. And it's about this far from a spinal cord. And that if the shrapnel would have gone just a little bit further, story of his life and ours would be very different. He would have never married my mom, would have never had the experience of not having biological children, would never have looked to adopt children, and the story goes on and on and on. And so I asked him, I said, so, Dad, at the moment when you were sitting in that MASH unit in Korea, You probably didn't think that God really knew what he was doing. But now, in hindsight, looking back, if God had not managed to work out your salvation, your health, the the, the maintaining of your life, I wouldn't be here. Not that that's the most important thing in the world. My children wouldn't be here. My grandchildren, now there you get personal, right? And he says, yeah, maybe it is all working out. And sometimes what happens is we react to the message, repent. And what we don't hear God saying is, you know, you're on a path that's just going to take you down a road that you really don't want to go. And if you'll just turn and trust me, I will take you where you need to be. And I will offer you a new path and a new future. And that's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel of God. That's the good news that Jesus comes to offer is that if we will trust him and we will follow his instructions, we will be happier. We might not be richer. We might not be more secure. 
We might not live longer and we might die young, but we will be happier and fulfilled in doing what God wants us to do. So that's the challenge for us. To stop trusting in our path, to stop trusting in what I think is right, to stop trusting in what I think will get me where I want to be and begin trusting God. And every time I'm tempted to think, yeah, I just don't know about this. Trust God. Every time it looks like Herod or Rome or Satan or evil or uh, uh, whatever I might want to imagine and experience, every time I begin to think that they are in charge, Jesus says, you got to repent from that thinking. You've got to turn it around. You've got to trust me. I'm coming from God to tell you. So Jesus calls us to repent and believe the gospel, the good news, the coming of this kingdom. And he invites us to turn from our self-serving lives and to give ourselves fully to God and what he's about. And if we'll do that, Jesus says we will be blessed. And we'll be happy. And we will experience everything that ultimately God wants for us. This is perhaps one of the shortest sermons Jesus preaches. And we understand it's a summary. But his message basically is, I'm here, repent, and believe the gospel. And that challenge stands for us today. If we can help you in that process, we'd be honored and love to do so. Make, uh, uh, go ahead and stand. We're going to sing. And if we can pray with you and for you, uh, Jeff will be at the front to receive your request.